Gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Combat Veteran Breakdown Podcast. I am your host, Paul, Combat Veteran, MMA Fighter, YouTuber, and Caffeine Addict. And today, I wanted to talk about something that I actually ranted about in one of the videos. I promised I would turn into a podcast, and I'm a man of my word. Sort of. I know this podcast has intermittent updates at best, but I am committed to making more episodes, and you're along for the ride. <clears throat> and so, what I wanted to talk about was the reason that the U.S. Army's beret is the reason we lost in Afghanistan and basically lost in Iraq. Now, you're going to have to bear with me a little bit, but by the time I'm done, I think you'll agree that that stupid piece of wool fabric is the reason we blew those wars. So let's talk about the Army's headgear, right? So the year is 19, it's like the 90s, right? And the Army has a congressionally mandated uniform. In fact, all of the armed services do. It's that BDU pattern, black, green, and other green camouflage. And everyone wears the same baseball-looking cap right? Nothing wrong with it. The cap is great. It's lighter than a helmet, keeps the sun out of your eyes, keeps your, uh, you know, keeps your face from getting sunburned, right? If you're bald like me, it preserves the top of your head. It's great. There's nothing wrong with it. Now, in the army, of course, there are some people that just can't get with the program. There are, in fact, two groups of soldiers who do not wear the uh, patrol cap is what it's called, right? That regular old brimmed hat. And the patrol cap, first off, in the field, everyone wears it because obviously you can't have fancy headgear with funny insignia on it, uh, shiny insignia on it in the field, right? You got to just rock your patrol cap. But in garrison, on the base, uh, sometimes two units will wear special headgear. The first is the green berets. And nobody says anything. Literally, their headgear is so iconic that they are nicknamed after the headgear. They're technically U.S. Army Special Forces, right? A.K.A. the Green Berets. John F. Kennedy is the one who gave it to them, and God help it, you will never get them to stop wearing that Green Beret. They will literally go over to another branch before they get told to put that thing away. That's not a problem. The other unit that does it is the U.S. Army Rangers. That's right. They have a tan beret. And frankly, the Rangers are the best unit in the Army, right? They are the best funded. They have the strictest recruiting standards. They have the highest expectation for physical fitness. Their training is hard, high octane, and never stops, right? You get what you pay for, and the Rangers pay for the best, and they are the best light infantry unit in in the army, maybe even in the world. So anyway, enter the early 2000s, right? The secretary of the army gets promoted a four-star general named Eric Shinseki. And Shinseki is a, not entirely, but largely a peacetime staff officer, right? He Let's see. Let's actually take a peek at old Eric Shinseki's bio. I think he commanded troops in Vietnam, I believe. Um, yeah, he was an artillery observer. Okay, so he did not command troops in Vietnam. Um, and, but then 
basically was in Europe, uh, taught at the U.S. Art Military Academy, right? Was chief of staff in Stuttgart, um, and then retired after 38 years of military service in 2003, right? His only other deployment to a, a war zone was in Bosnia-Herzegovina, not really much of a war zone. But he did become chief of staff, right? And he implemented a whole bunch of programs, basically none of which proved to be very effective, right? He rolled out the striker brigades, which was meant to be a vehicle that was light and mobile, like mounted infantry, like mechanized infantry, but brought the heavy firepower, not unlike a tank. Uh, the problem is, of course, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, the roads were too underdeveloped to make the striker a feasible vehicle, right? If the roads were big and wide, you brought in a tank, and if the roads were narrow or dirt or unstable, you could only get a Humvee through. So the strikers were just seen as a middle ground that nobody wanted. But, but Shinseki had another policy change, and that, of course, is to roll out the beret. Right. For those of you that don't know what a beret is, a beret is a funny little wool cap. Right. It is. Well, it, it, if you've seen, take, think of your beatnik stereotype. Right. He has that little hat, but in a military beret, the wool is folded very carefully. It comes down and folds directly over the eye. It looks kind of cool when you style it right, and if you style it wrong, it you look like a complete fool. Right. So Shinseki says, you know, I really like the way that beret looks, and I think I'm going to roll it out for the whole army. Now, you've got to remember, when you want to change something about the army, or the army is a million, 1.5 million people, 500,000 on active duty, and another 1 million in the guard or reserve component. So when you say, I want to get... Uh, make everyone get berets, let's say every soldier needs two, potentially three berets. Well, you're looking at, again, a purchase of 4.5 million wool berets. Now, remember, every soldier, right, if you need to, say, prepare the berets for use or distribution, right, you're incurring even more costs. And you're incurring costs not just in materials and purchasing these berets, but you're incurring costs in terms of time, manpower, resources that could be better diverted to something else. So, all that to say, right, why would Shinseki become so fixated on headgear? This is, and I'm not making this up, his rationale. He said that the army rangers have the highest esprit de corps, that is, their sense of loyalty to the unit, their sense of duty, their commitment to training hard, and their outstanding conduct on the battlefield. That, those traits, that esprit de corps, said the rangers have it better than anyone else in the army. And they have a beret. Therefore, the beret must cause the rangers esprit de corps. Not making this up, the beret causes the army rangers who, again, are the most selective, most prestigious, highest trained, best funded unit in the army, are great not for those reasons, but because they have the silly hats. So, the four-star general, the chief of staff of the army, the man who has risen past every other general to be the highest ranking person who isn't on the joint chiefs of staff, 
believes that the silly wool hat made the Army Rangers tougher, stronger, and a better fighting force. That might be the dumbest logic I've ever heard in my entire life. And what you have to understand is that the wool beret was a pain. Why? Because when you purchased it, it the, the felt was very, very thick. And in order for it to sit as the army required it to sit, folded carefully over the head with a fold over the, over the uh, right eye and the flash directly over the left eye, in order to get that shape, it was a huge pain, right? First, you had to take it, you had to shave the excess material off the beret, and you'd have to do it with like a disposable razor. And usually it wouldn't take just one. You would need about three disposable razors to carefully shave every corner down, right? Sometimes you'd have to go over multiple times. So right there, you're committing probably about an hour to shaving it down. Then you have to get it to fit properly to your head to have the fold in the right place. And you want it because you have to put it on and off quickly in the military, right? You put on headgear anytime you're not in overhead cover. So you go out and, right, you need it to, to comport to that shape easily. How do you do that? Well, you put it on your, you soak it wet. You get it soaking wet. You put it on your head, right? And then because it's wet, it's heavy, it's easier to shape. You shape it in a position and then you spray it down with hairspray, right? Like a lot of hairspray. And then carefully, once it's started to set, you so carefully lift it off your head, turn it around and set it on your closet or in your wall locker or somewhere where it won't be disturbed, but it's in the perfect shape, frozen in time. And then you cannot touch it for a day or two. Then when you come back, right, it's hopefully you put it back on your head, you wear it for a while, you shape it. You may have to get it wet and respray it again so it really locks in that shape properly. And then finally, if you've done all that right, you have a working beret. Now I wanna contrast this with the patrol cap which when you wore it, you prepared it by taking the cap, bending the brim a little bit, and placing it on your head. That's it. That is an authorized for wear patrol cap. Now, yeah, some units, you had to put your name on the, get your name sewn on the back, and you had to get your rank on the front, but you had to do that with the beret too, right? So it wasn't, yeah, we, the army went from a very simple, no problem headgear to very problematic headgear. Oh, and to make it more annoying, when you're in the field, when you're doing training, then you can't wear the beret. It's not for a tactical environment. It, you, for that, you put on a patrol cap. So now you need to do everything with a patrol cap and also have two or three of these hard to shape berets. And so, What's, what's, what's the point of this insanity, right? That the army makes stupid decisions? Well, yes, but no, right? I want you to understand the level of detachment from reality that you have to have when over 34 years of leading soldiers, right? That you believe that the headgear causes the fighting spirit, the esprit de corps. Think about how much dumb information you would have to receive in order to believe that something so clearly counterintuitive is true, 
right? That literally the visual representation of the Army Rangers and Green Berets is the thing that makes them great. Is the thing that gives them not their selective courses, not their training, not their strong martial tradition. No, it is their silly hats. The level and here's the thing, right? And this is a function of the kind of general that thrives in the army in the 90s and to today. That is risk averse, right? The U.S. military hates nothing more than losing, having soldiers get hurt, having equipment get damaged. It hates it. And if you do one of those things or lost, I can personally attest that soldiers who get hurt in accidents, uh, soldiers who lose gear, um, or soldiers that damage equipment, their leadership faces the most severe negative consequences. In some ways, more severe than personal conduct failures like harassment or DUIs or drug use. And I don't really know why that is, right? Before the 90s, the army said, listen, if you train hard, accidents happen sometimes, right? If you drive your tanks around, if the army every year puts hundreds of thousands of hours in its armored vehicles to train, some of them are just going to get broken. And you should absolutely assess why if soldiers get hurt. You should try to try, try to fix it so that it does not happen again. But the fact is that if you want an army that trains hard, equipment will break, things will get lost, soldiers will get hurt. This is, this is a reality. Not saying you should maximize it, but you should accept at some operational level that this is a thing that will happen, right? But the army decided, again, in the early 90s, that no, these mistakes, these routine occurrences that happen all the time are completely and utterly unacceptable. And that careers will be killed over these. And so what is the problem then? Well, the problem is, what sort of officer advances in that world? Well, I'll tell you who will not advance. The officer that tries to train their soldiers in a unique and innovative way. Doing something that's never been done before? Well, what's that investigation going to say when a Humvee gets its axle broken? They'll say, show me in the manual where this has been done before. Well, how'd you know it was safe? How'd you know you should do this? That commander gets blamed. That commander never gets promoted, right? If you have a commander who tries to manage their people in a... Uh, uh, or train their personnel in a different way, right? Again, someone's going to ask them, hey, why did your personnel not complete these three trainings? Because one of your soldiers got in a vehicle accident, but you said that you were going to not have your soldiers do the required uh, online vehicle safety training courses. Well, again, a bold commander might say, hey, I have a different vision for how I want my unit trained, but the Army says, nope. Nope. You have to make sure you comply with all the training because the require that you are required to do this training, and if you don't, you're liable if your soldiers get hurt, whether it's from not taking these online trainings or these silly trainings or not. The result of all this is that the personnel you select, the generals you select, are officers who have zero risk tolerance. They find the things that that have 
the that are the facsimile of progress without actually doing anything. They find symbols of, of action and leadership without actually providing real change in leadership. And the classic one that happens at almost every level is things like uniforms, right? By making marginal changes to the uniform, it gives the appearance as though a commander is coming in with a fresh look, a fresh perspective, a fresh way of doing things, um, when in reality, that commander is never going to assume the risk to their career that is inherent in actually training a different way, leading a different way, operating a different way. Right? Doing things actually different is too hard. So it's much easier to make symbolic changes, right? Changing your unit motto or unit crest or uh, ch changing the you know, uniform of the day. These are the changes that uh, pass as leadership in the army, in an army that is incredibly risk averse as an institution, one that cannot accept that having a risk-taking commander who tries to do things differently, which is something that, again, think about a peacetime army. A peacetime army needs to figure out how to train and fight for a war of the future. But if you never, if, if you only rely on tried and true methods, you will only be training for the war of the past. And that's what you got in the 90s and into the 2000s, right? You have these career officers who the ones that thrive are the ones that know how to protect their career better than almost anyone else alive. And so the result is, after 34 years of doing nothing but making symbolic changes without actually executing real fundamental assessments of how the army trains and fights, you ended up with this fighting force that was more or less structured, equipped, and trained to sort of fight a Cold War Soviet type of enemy, right? And so that's the force that went into Iraq and Afghanistan, right? And it was led by people like Eric Shinseki, people who were concerned with protecting their careers and complying with regulations without ever doing anything resembling ambition or aggressive leadership. And you saw that, right? Abu Ghraib ultimately was a failure of, of the moral character. Abu Ghraib was the, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you should Google it. It's uh, Iraqi detainees were badly abused by U.S. Uh, military personnel and allegedly, allegedly uh, CIA interrogators. But the unit leadership of this military police unit, the, the military leadership of this prison had almost no involvement and buried their head deep in the sand when confronted with the fact that their unit was abusing detainees, was violating their human rights. And when the word and the photos got out, they galvanized the resistance against the U.S. forces because it was so humiliating. Well, not it was humiliating to the Iraqis, but also it painted the U.S. as cruel, inhuman invaders and not the compassionate force of liberators that the U.S. really needed to be seen as. And I think, again, this is just emblematic. Look at Afghanistan, right? So many, you can read all the SIGAR reports where basically the war in Afghanistan was fought as 10 one-year wars. People did the exact same things again and again and again and again because no one is willing to support any efforts to take a risk and try 
anything different. When I was in Afghanistan, we were at year 10, year 10 of the war. Yeah, year nine and 10 of the war. And yet we were still being instructed to teach the Afghan police who a decade they've been doing this to teach them how to put on handcuffs. First off, almost no one needs instructions on how to put on handcuffs. They're, they're, they're idiot proof. You literally just cuff somebody. That you just you can watch it on a TV show and figure it out. They're as easy as you think they are, and it, you know how to unlock them because there's a literal keyhole. It's the only hole in the cuffs. It's comically easy, but doing anything else, more advanced training, vetting them, even things like joint operations. Right, the joint operations were patrols. That's the only thing they would authorize. Is extremely low risk walking around villages holding hands and like shaking hands and talking to people right these were extremely low risk operations that were extremely unlikely to produce any meaningful partnerships and any meaningful results but you did them year after year after year because the generals the senior officers were so risk averse the idea of doing anything else was just anathema right why would you try to do something different when you can show up in country, you can take everything your predecessor did and just start copying it again and again and again. But you end up 10 years down the line and you have spent a lot of money, but you haven't actually made the country better. You haven't developed it because you've never moved the chess pieces forward. You've played the same opening move and then reset the board again and again and again. And the Taliban did the same thing, right? The Taliban fought in cyclical seasons. They recruited farmers uh, who would plant their crops and then leave and fight and then return in time for the harvest. And so you had, and it actually lined up with the U.S. Army's deployment schedule. That sounds completely bananas because it is. And because literally every year you would have new officers come in they would put their units up against the Taliban. Those units would be green and inexperienced. They would learn their way through a fighting season. The fighting season would end, right? And then a new unit would come in and they would be green and the fighting season would begin again. And it was just, it's just comical to see these sort of things play out. The Taliban, of course, get to make their careers by resisting the uh, infidel invader and the army officers and soldiers make their careers by having a combat deployment. Everyone goes home, everyone advances. The only thing that doesn't come out on top is no one actually wins the war. Someone actually has to make a strategic advance of some kind in order to win the war. The Taliban knew that they were winning just by existing, that the US wasn't going to stay in the country forever and their continued existence was them on the path to victory. The US, on the other hand, had to actually take the fight to the enemy, do something to eliminate them. And But with a generation of commanders raised with zero risk, who believed things like uniform changes or symbolic changes were a reasonable proxy, proxy for actual changes to the way the army trains and fights, is just... You were never, it was never going to happen. They were never really going to bring the war into the late game, right? They just weren't capable of it. 
they could only their minds could only conceive of resetting the boards and that's why someone like eric shinseki could become appointed to the very top of the military's hierarchy despite appearing to have a, a limited understanding of even cause and effect and as a testament to just how incompetent this dude is right he was appointed after being in the army to the va which the VA was also comically poorly run, right? You can literally see the agency he went to was mired in scandal as a result of his leadership. I mean, it, truly, this is someone who is like embarrassingly uh, poor <laughs> at his job. And it's just, it's just sad. It really is. Um, you know, of course, Shinseki, let's see, served as director for Honeywell, and a military contractor called Dukuman, Grove Farm, Hawaiian Bank, Life Insurance Company, etc., etc. Right? And I don't know what the solution is, right? I know I should, I'm going to complain, I should have some sort of solution, um, but I don't, right? The, the army needs to accept risk and it needs to start learning its lessons about how it trains and fights and it's tried you've seen some glimmers of it they implemented something called call center for uh army lessons learned which helps distribute pamphlets about the operational environment and, and and help the army retain some institutional knowledge but the reality is that i haven't seen anything from my side on the civilian side of the house that indicates that the army is fundamentally reevaluating the way it trains and fights if anything commanders are excited at the idea that they don't need to look too hard at the lessons of iraq and afghanistan and that they can focus all in on doing things the old school way, right? Making no meaningful self-assessment. Instead, just pouting each other on the back at having been, you know, Billy Badass commanders in a war and promoting each other up until there's a bunch of general officers who may or may not have relevant combat experience. I just wanna point out one other thing that does keep me awake at night, and that is actually a book I recently finished by John Stockwell about the CIA's experience in Angola. It's a fascinating read. You should absolutely check it out. Um, but there was one particular passage that I did find somewhat worrying where he talked about how hard it was to find, uh, in this case, former Portuguese soldiers who had fought a guerrilla war for a decade against the uh, MPLA, and that he needed to find some to recruit to fight a conventional force-on-force -force war. And one of the things he said is that everyone knows, this was written in 75, everyone knows that if you have experience fighting a bush war, you're not gonna really be able to translate that into a hot force-on-force -force maneuver war. And that, that keeps me awake at night because countries like Russia and China they are preparing for a force-on-force -force maneuver war. They are preparing for armies to take up arms and fight one another. So, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means for anybody. But thank you guys for joining me on this little podcast experience. Uh, uh, if you want more or you have other topics you want me to cover, man, let me know in the comments. And until next time, I'll see you guys on the next one.